Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are on this rotating sphere. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where all the stuff we used to believe in daytime that was kind of 100%, and we now say, whoa, what's going on? Well, it's a continuation of what used to happen only at this time of night, first of all, on the Long John Neville Show decades ago. And then on Art Bell, and now on George, and now on a proliferation. I mean, when you look at TalkStream, and you see all the people who have talk shows on, on, on the radio, on the internet, who are connecting and connected. I mean, we certainly live in an era where you can talk to anyone about almost anything. Well, maybe almost anything. There are some things that I think you can't talk to people about, but we won't, we won't get into that tonight. Tonight is, by the way, a very important anniversary. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the gorgeous graphic that can be prepared for tonight, the Lost Boys of Thailand, click on that. That will take you to the, to the uh, guest page for uh, Chris and Georgia and John and a cast of thousands. And if you scroll down, you'll come to my items and radio with pictures. And there are two links there. Related to the moon. Last night and tonight, in fact, this entire weekend, is the 49th anniversary of when Apollo 11 with Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins in a little double set of spaceships, the command module and the lunar module, made that trek 239,000 average miles away from Earth, landed yesterday. And today, the 21st, is when they ascended again in the ascent module, went back and rendezvoused with the command module, spent a day or so in lunar orbit, and then began coming home. And it's like one of those, you know, everybody knows where they were when John Kennedy was killed. Well, I know, I can remember with exquisite detail where I was and what I was doing 49 years ago tonight, because I was in California. I was hobnobbing people like uh, Robert Heinlein. I was walking through a whole solar system that we had built for CBS to be the backdrop to narrating with various guests the importance of landing on the moon. And I can remember like yesterday. So if you go to those first links, link number one, uh, remember how a few years ago NASA went looking for the original videotape of the landing and they couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And finally they said, whoops, it looks like we erased it. I mean, believe me, if you if you believe that, there, there's a bridge out there I can sell you, I think. But what they did, because they couldn't come out with the real footage, is they went and they, they pilfered their stocks of the network footage from CBS. They looked at uh, data, you know, videotape data they had. 
in Australia from the tracking station there. They put together a whole bunch of different versions of the moonwalk video from that night, last night, the 20th of July. And they put them through a computer and they, you know, average the noise because if you add different signals, you drive down noise and drive up the, the, the signal. So what's there is the best version that until they suddenly miraculously one day post-disclosure suddenly find the real videotape, uh, that's the best you're going to see of this incredible, epic, three-hour moonwalk where Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong did all kinds of things in front of a black-and-white TV camera with the flag up next to the lunar module sitting there on the surface of the Sea of Tranquility. And I was you know, working to get ready for tonight's show, so I kind of had this on in the background. I hadn't watched a good chunk of this three hours for, well, for decades. And it's interesting, the little things that I remember noticing that night that I noticed again watching this this afternoon to make sure it was the right copy and that when we put it up, you guys would all have the thrill, who were not there live and who may not even have been born when we first landed on the moon. Item number two, um, Elon Musk, who we're going to talk about a bit later, later this morning, um, has been saying for a couple, three years that he was going to send two mystery astronauts, two mystery customers who apparently can afford the price of hundreds of thousands of dollars to get into a spacecraft, be launched on a SpaceX rocket, and literally loop around the moon, kind of like the trajectory of Apollo 8, which occurred some months before Apollo 11 in the waning months, month, literally one month of uh, 1968 where I was also there watching with disbelief that I was so lucky to be able to be a first-person witness to such an extraordinary um, moment in history. Anyway, those two links will kind of give you some background, where we were and where we're going regarding um, NASA's mission to the moon. Now, there's a lot of folks out there, not necessarily listening to this show, I would, I would hope, but there are folks who think that none of this ever happened. Trust me, boys and girls, it did. I was there. I saw it in exquisite detail. I just wish I'd seen more so I could answer in great depth some of these bizarre critiques. And one of the things that I wish I'd been more aware of, we were going to talk about tonight, is the extraordinary ritual symbolism which NASA attached to the National Space Program, which I was totally unaware of until literally decades later, as I began to look and see that so many things that NASA has done and continues to do take place on certain dates with certain alignments, with certain uh, conjunctions, certain oppositions, certain you know celestial relationships to the Earth and to each other. And it wasn't until a long time after that I kind of put it together and realized that what they were trying to do, even then, unacknowledged in public, of course, is to garner favor from <laughs> the gods. Actually, the alignments work in the physics. So if you do certain things in certain alignments, the physics is kind of, you know, like the force is with you. I mean, who would think that modern day engineers would actually believe this? But they do because it's the real physics. It does work. 
We're about to enter something called Mercury retrograde next week. We're going to have an extraordinary eclipse on the 27th, the longest eclipse of this century and close to the longest lunar eclipse that we can ever have when the moon goes directly through the center of the Earth's shadow. And I've got a surprise plan. I'm not going to tell you in detail, but we may have a guest on Saturday following. On Saturday night, a week from tonight, on the 28th, we may have a guest that will tell you about measurements of the tremors in the force that are occasioned by this lunar eclipse. Oh, and also Mars is in opposition uh, that night on the 27th, meaning it's directly opposite the Earth and the Sun in its orbit, and oppositions amplify the physics in certain ways. And those two things are going on. And oh, we're also entering where Mercury going around the sun geometrically will appear from the Earth to begin to slow down and then reverse optically because of the geometry of the various orbits projected from the pole down to the plane of the solar system. So next week energetically uh, could be very, very interesting because as we now know, and we've done – how many shows have we done? We've done thousands maybe, maybe almost up to a 1,000 now, I think, where we talk about the interrelationships between this physics and us, between, you know, consciousness, between all of us on this rotating globe trying to uh, figure out what's going on, why, you know, and I just lost my feed. Oh, why did I do that? That's crazy. Okay. I will get it back. There we are. So we're going to talk about symbolism tonight because that's where I kind of learned uh, that there's a lot of stuff, not just at NASA, but a lot of stuff connected with public policy, connected with very aspects of the government, connected with uh, political pronouncements, connected with when meetings are arranged. I mean, isn't it interesting that um, um, the president met with the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, on the 16th, which, as I said last week, um, is intriguing because that was the night, July 16th, 49 years ago, that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins left <laughs> for the moon. Anyway, we'll get into all that later this morning in terms of symbolism. Let me now go to my first guest and introduce some very important people for the rest of the evening. Christopher Loring Knowles is the author of the Eagle Award-winning Our Gods Were Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. He's co-author of The Complete X-Files, Behind the Series, The Myths, and the Movies, and The Secret History of Rock and Roll, The Mysterious Roots of Modern Music. You know, we ought to do a show on that book. I don't know an awful lot about rock and roll, except the 27 appeared to be a drop-dead date for an awful lot of performers from Janis Joplin on. Uh, Chris was an associate editor and columnist for the five-time Eisner Award-winning comic book artist magazine, as well as writer and reviewer for the UK magazine Classic Rock. Chris has appeared on Good Morning America and BH1's Metal Evolution and all kinds of other radio shows. So instead of talking about all the radio stuff and all the media stuff he's done, I'll do one more thing. You must go to his, his website through our website called The Secret Sun and click on that link because Chris does some amazing things 
in in this blog, The Secret Sun. In fact, what we're going to talk about tonight first appeared in a more rudimentary form on The Secret Sun. So, Chris, without further ado, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Great to be here. Great to be here. Well, as I said, I'm I'm really a fan. I've been a fan for decades, and, and you are doing astonishing work. And I was looking at this thing we're going to talk about, and then independently you sent out an email or a response to one of those very long strings that get circulated. And you said, totally without us talking, that you had looked at some really curious things connected with this Thailand adventure separately. And I thought, oh, my God, we have got to. We've just got to do a show on this. So um, kind of hold it there because I want to introduce Georgia, our second guest for this, these segments of the show is Georgia Lambert, who has over 50 years of experience in the field of esoteric studies, receiving formal training in Eastern and Western disciplines, methods, and traditions. Georgia was the first to be licensed by the state of California to teach meditation and esoteric physiology, an experimental course she presented for three years at the College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific. In the past, Georgia has served on the Board of Directors of United Health Resources, has been on the staff of the Institute for Health Facilitation for three years, taught for two years for the Institute of the Advancement of Human Potential, and served on the teaching staff of the Philosophical Research Society with Manley Hall for 10 years. And we could go on, but you can read all this stuff at the bottom of the guest page. Georgia, welcome to the other side. Good evening. Well, guys and gals, we are all here except John's going to join us. John Francis is going to join us in the third hour because he has some very interesting additional information on on the uh, 12 boys and their uh, soccer coach who got lost in a cave. Why don't we jump right in? Um, Chris – why did this story flag your attention like it flagged mine? What was it that said to you there is more than we're seeing in public on this? Well, the first thing that really caught my attention was when the Navy SEAL died. Yeah, um, me too. That was like, wow. Yeah. And the way he died was bizarre. I mean, you know, I've always been taught. I've never been in scuba diving. Um, I've done some snorkeling, but never did scuba diving. But I kind of looked at it, and Arthur C. Clarke, my old friend, was was into scuba diving. So I learned from him that the first rule is the buddy system. You never go anywhere without a buddy because you're in a very dangerous environment. Nitrogen narcosis can overtake you at any time to come up from depth quickly. And the idea that this guy was wandering around down there in a cave two and a half miles below the earth, putting oxygen tanks as caches along the route – they were going to use to try to get the kids out, and he was doing it all by himself, and that he ran out of oxygen because he he ran out of oxygen when he's got a whole bunch of tanks to put a, as a cash for for the future events. Just it made no sense. It it just rang very weird to me, and that's when I really started looking. So this triggered your alarm bells too. Yeah, that was really suspicious to me. But when I had read that they had gone into the cave originally as part of an initiation ritual, it's just like, oh, well, here we go. Uh, <laughs> um, I, all I could think about was, you know, the Mithraic mysteries in which um, initiations 
by ordeal, by the way, and this is something that people seem to overlook about the Mithraic Mysteries, is that each initiation and each step to each um, grade was uh, determined by ordeal. So Okay, we're going to have to back way up because you've introduced a new term that I'm sure 99.99% of people go, what? Myth, myth who? What are Mithraic Mysteries? Okay, the Mithraic Mysteries were... Um, what are called mystery religions. And mystery religions were a phenomenon in the Greco-Roman world in which um, people had become dis disenchanted and disheartened with the state cults, you know, the state cults of Jupiter and Juno and Apollo and so on and so forth, and had come to um, practice what's called henotheism. Now, henotheism is, it's sort of next door to monotheism. And it's a, it's a system in which you Acknowledge that the other gods exist, and the other gods are important, but you focus your adoration on a single deity. And it was sort of like the intermediary step between uh, classical polytheism and what had come to be, uh, you know, axial age monotheism. So um, the mystery religions were very, very important uh, in that time period. And in that book that, I, that you had mentioned, The Secret History of Rock and Roll, I mean, I basically show how... The mystery religions were basically the rock and roll um, in every single solitary way you can imagine, except for electricity of the ancient world. And uh, the mystery. Really? Yes, absolutely. There's, oh my, yeah. no, when, when you say the rock and roll, are we talking music? Are we talking? Um, are we talking rituals? everything? Everything. I mean, the music, um, I mean, the music was, uh, that was practiced in the mystery religions was essentially heavy metal. Um, they, they played these giant metal guitars. Um, they used a, their swords and shields, uh, what are called uh, either the Pyrrhic dancers or the Corabantes, the Karites. I mean, there are another number of different names that these people practice under. But basically where they were, they armored hoplites who would um, perform, you know, a la Judas Priest, a la Iron Maiden at these uh, rituals. And, uh, you know, they would scream until their throats were raw. They would um, have dances that were sword fights. They would uh, play these giant instruments that um, seem to only exist within the context of the mystery religions, these giant, basically, guitars. Um, they had, uh, you know, very large sounding boxes because, of course, they didn't have electricity. So basically, everything that you can imagine would happen in, a, in a, say, a rock concert, particularly like a heavy metal rock concert, particularly like a 70s heavy metal rock concert, is part and parcel lifted from the ancient mysteries. I mean, they would... <laughs> you know, consume, uh, hallucinogens. Um, there would be all sorts of rituals before the, before the, um, actual, uh, liturgy. Um, it was just a whole, whole phenomenon that Did is, they have conferences where people would come from far and wide, like a hundred miles away to show oh, absolutely. up. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. There was a Lucis, there was Samothrace. I mean, you had a number of different, um, mystery centers. Uh, Alexandria was very popular. Um, uh, Delphi, um, all these different areas where um, mystery religions would be practiced. And yeah, I mean, they were world famous. Um, they were very highly regarded, very highly regarded by politicians and philosophers and those kind of people, tastemakers and so on. And so this was kind of like a mixture of uh, rock concert meets holy rollers. Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, in the, in the book, I sort of, and spell we have out, to define for a lot of people what I mean by holy rollers. Yeah. Well, that's the Pentecostal, you know, enthusiast, Christian enthusiasm, um, you know, speaking in tongues, rolling around on the floor. 
um, that to me was sort of the um, the first blush of the the revival of the mystery religions, and and of course what we have now with rave culture and and so on and so forth, it's um, very much uh, the Dionysian mysteries, and the Dionysian mysteries were, um, you know, kind of problematic to the the powers that be in some ways. Um, they were sort of seen as um, dens of 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 rebellion, and um, you know. Uh, disquiet within the population so um so these these rituals these the mass rituals were looked on like rock and roll laws by by you know parents shock parents in the 1950s in, in some regards i mean certainly in the early days um the roman uh, historian livy had talked about that the roman senate was so um outraged and so threatened by the um the mystery religious predominantly because they were very popular with the, the masses of um, Greek immigrants that had come into Rome. And this was seen as a you know, potential source of sedition against the state. Um, you know, there was so a, this was a religion of the lower class masses then? It, it began that way. It began as a religion of the lower class masses and then became, you know, it's just it, the, the best. Where the establishment was worshiping Zeus and Hera and Apollo, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, if you look at things like Burning Man, I mean, Burning Man is, is yeah, Burning Man. Wow, yeah, yeah, is is a very um, modern corporate high tech yeah, version a, of the Dionysian, you know, free for alls. I mean, you name it. There was a number of different gods that were worshipped, um, but the most popular were uh, Demeter and Persephone and <clears throat> and Dionysus. And then later on, in the um, early imperial era of Rome we had the Mithraic Mysteries. And the Mithraic Mysteries were ostensibly based on a um, Persian god named, um, from the Zoroastrian tradition, named, uh, the, well, the original name is Mitra, and then the Romanized um, translation of that was Mithras. Now, Mitra was a uh, sun god, a fire god, and um, was sort of a subservient figure to um, Uhura Mazda and and the, the the pantheon, the higher pantheon of Zoroastrian religion, he was very much like a, um, a you know an Apollo or a Christ figure within that that pantheon. And um, the, the the cover story, which I don't believe, is that um, it came <laughs> into Rome through um, what are called Sicilians. Now this is gets a little confusing because this is Sicily. That was in Anatolia. That was in Turkey, not Sicily. Ah. That we're familiar with, you know, the off the boot of of the Italy. island off the okay. Yeah. So um, the the cover story was that the um, Mithraic. So this is a Middle Eastern religion from Turkey, you say? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, ostensibly, now um, the original expression of this ostensibly comes to us through. Um, Zoroastrianism. So its provenance is a bit muddled. Its provenance is a bit garbled. Its provenance is a bit muddied. Now, what I believe um, Mithras to be is that Mithras to me is a, um, he's an incarnation of gods like Horus and like Marduk, um, sort of the um, sun, S-U-N, sun, S-O-N gods, um, that were not well regarded by Roman society, or particularly um, soldiers and alpha males and so on and so forth, that you had the popularity of the um, Isis cults 
and you had the Isis mysteries, which were very popular. You had um, <clears throat> Isis and Serapis, very popular in Alexandria. You know, the, the Ptolemies had sort of devised the system to keep the, um, the Greeks. Alexandria and Egypt were not in, not in Greek, Greece. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Alexandria in Egypt. Well, the, the um, that was a bit of a Freudian slip because um, the there was such an influx of Greeks into Alexandria that they had begun to clash with the native Egyptians, and that uh, religion became a flashpoint for this. So, um, you know, the proconsuls and the governors had just devised uh, the you know Isis and Serapis, and Serapis was basically uh, you know Jupiter, Zeus. Uh, combined with with Osiris, and there were elements of Pan in there, and there were even elements of of Jehovah. So there was a sort of a uh, a figure that could be seen as um, a, an interlocutor between these uh, clashing ethnic groups in this very very important uh, port city, in the you know first in the the Greek Empire and you know the empire that Alexander had Alexander himself had built, and w had been. Um, maintained and sustained by his generals. And then, of course, we had the, the change over to um, Roman power, Roman imperial power. So, uh, again, this was a very important city um, for trade and for uh, learning. So um, th this system had been devised to... Um, so when was this pre-Christ figure Mithras kind of in ascendance? When was his biggest popularity in well, this uh, Greco world? In the first century BC, um, maybe mid first century BC, that this character uh, Mithras is first recorded. Now you had um, what are called sort of pseudo Oriental gods that were these were figures that the Romans had adapted, made their own versions of um, of, of of Asian gods, and Asia being, of course, you know, Asia Minor, the Near East, and um, in, in this case, Mithras was seen to be, um, I see Mithras as very much a, um, a hybrid of Apollo and Hercules. And, and of course, at this point in time, both figures are associated with the sun. Um, you know, you have the 12 labors of Hercules. You have uh, Apollo sort of taking the place of, um, <clears throat> of Helios, who was a titan, actually, and not a god. So I, I believe that... Um, People had become, you know, grown bored with um, the state cults, and because Hercules and Apollo were such an important part of the um, the temple cults, the official cults, which had become very dry and dull at this point in time. How do you separate? Let me stop you. How do you separate a religion from a cult? Well, because isn't it really, you know, anybody else's religion is a cult, but yours is a religion. Yours is the connection to the Godhead, that kind of thing. I, I I would just I would clarify the difference between the two in in two ways. One is size, that cults tend to be smaller than religions, and one is um, official sanction. So if something is sanctioned by officialdom, by you know, the emperors and the military and so on and so forth, um, then it, it you know it graduates into a religion, and you know cults sort of imply. So it's really based on political power. Oh, cults which yeah, rise yeah. to supremacy have the power of the state, so they're suddenly ordained, they're sanctioned, they're 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 de rigueur, and anything which is not <clears throat> is a cult. Yes, but um, the, the Mithraic uh, mystery religion is fascinating because it was very very popular among um, 
alpha males. Uh, the military, in particular, were um, keen uh, observants of this cult, and uh, your businessmen, um, people higher up in in the government. That this was, um, you know, this was like a religion that, um, you know, your Donald Trumps of the ancient world, and your, you know, your John Kellys, and you know, your Michael Bloomberg's, those kind of people would. Um, and and that's another story that we can get to in a moment. But um, that this was a this was a cult that was very very popular among the movers and shakers of of these societies, the men who 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 made things happen, and the. Um, so we're the, talking Mithras now. Yeah, Mithras, exactly. Okay. Now, they um, worshipped in caves or in underground chambers. And um, it was important that if they had been worshipping in a cave, that there was a well, okay, that there was a source, a, a large source of water within that cave. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the stipulations. So that was one of the things that kind of caught my attention um, as to this situation in Thailand. So when I saw the, um, the seal dying and the initiation that, that brought the initiation ritual that brought these boys into the cave in the first place, but also the, um, province of Thailand, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce this, mispronounce this. And I'm, I apologize for this. I believe it's called Chiang Mai. Hey, but hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, <clears throat> Chris Knowles. We're going back in time to Mithraism. And how does this connect to Thailand? Stay tuned. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. to the first hour of the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously that can see our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit midnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast 
courtesy of Chris Bell, automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies Room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kintia posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back on this Saturday night, on the 21st of July, the 49th anniversary weekend of the Apollo 11 landing on the moon. Where were you? What were you doing? I remember vividly. I never imagined 49 years ago I'd be sitting here tonight talking about mythrism with my guests. I'll tell you what, let me bring Georgia on here, because Georgia, I think you have an interesting perspective on Mithraism. Yes, I just uh, wanted to add a couple of things. You know, when we look at the rituals of Freemasonry, everybody goes back to the Old Testament and the story of Hiram Abiff, the architect of uh, Solomon's Temple. <clears throat> but there is a ton of symbology in Freemasonry that goes to the Mithraic uh, initiation rites. Really? Yes. Uh, Manly Palmer Hall divided these rites into seven sacraments, and uh, I'll I'll just list them for you, and the Masons out there can can uh, see how this fits. Mm, seven um, tetrahedral sacraments. Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> uh, the first uh, uh, level uh, is is called the the um, level of the Raven. 
And the raven uh, carries the messages from the sun to humanity. Uh, one of the main symbols in that particular level was the ear of wheat or corn that we see in Freemasonry and other um, uh, mystery traditions. The second uh, level was called the occult, uh, and this, the main symbol was the initiate hidden behind the veil and having to pierce that veil. The third one was the one of the soldier. This is the mystic warrior, uh, the symbol of the crown on the sword, the initiate was given a mark on the forehead, and part of the ritual was to be given a crown and refuse to accept it. Maybe that sounds familiar. Mm. The, for, the fourth one uh, was the um, level of the lion, um, the symbol of honey and being anointed, anointed with honey was part of this ritual. The uh, beehive is, is certainly a symbol that we see a lot of in Freemasonry. This was also the ceremony of the bread and the wine, which is central to so many different mystery traditions. The fifth one was the most interesting to me. It, it was called the um, level of the Persian. And in this one, the initiate was taught sacred architecture. Oh. And so a lot of time in, in um, the building of the Gothic cathedrals and in medieval times when, um, you know, in the, the history books, it says that he hired a Persian architect. It didn't mean someone from Persia. It meant an initiate of the Mithraic mysteries that was schooled in sacred architecture. They were given the red cap to wear, the, the um, uh, Phrygian cap, that is kind of a soft little cap. You see it on the symbol of liberty and the French French Revolution. Um, is this related to a fez, perchance? No, it's not a fez. It's a soft cap. It's like a conical cap that it kind of flops over. The, you see it in some of the oldest um, Byzantine mosaics that depict the three wise men. They're all wearing oh. these red Phrygian caps. It's symbolized the pineal gland. Oh, okay. The sixth one was called the runner of the sun, and this is the movement from um, the initiate up to the sun rather than from the sun down to the initiate. And the final one was the father of the lodge. Uh, this was sort of like the archdruid in other systems. This was the grand master or sacred father. So when the Mithraic religion was brought into Northern Europe, largely by the Roman soldiers, uh, it imprinted, in a sense, on a on a Jungian archetypal level of consciousness, um, some of these rituals that are still uh, extremely active in Freemasonic rituals today. Mm. Now, when you say these were Mithraic, were they direct transfers, or did the Masons kind of amplify them, paint them with gold, paint you know, put feathers around them? Did they? Did they add, you know, bells and whistles and ruffles and flourishes, or were these oh, direct sure. transfers? Okay. Well, some of them were direct. You know, the the um, the typical uh, icon of Mithras. It's it's very complex, actually. It's not just the figure of Mithras slaying the bull uh, by by uh, slicing its throat. There's a lot involved in the symbology, but one of the uh, symbols is the undercloak of Mithras was often painted indigo with stars. And the uh, ceiling in certain Masonic rituals is indigo with stars. 
Mm, so a direct celestial link. Yep. Okay. So let's go back to Chris and pick up on this narrative because Chris, I got to tell you, when you first hit me with this, this idea that these 12 kids from 11 to, I think 17 plus an adult coach, uh, who's 25, I think he was 25 is 25 were part of some extraordinary ancient ritual symbolism. I said, Oh, come on. Good grief. So give me more data. Why is this more than just a crazy idea between you and me and Georgia? <clears throat> well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the, the sort of the main bullet points that really caught my attention and got me looking at this. Um, first of all, the initiation in the cave. And initiation. Well, no, wait, 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 hang on, hang on. The public story was they had a soccer practice. After the soccer practice, one of them had a birthday. And for the birthday, this coach was going to take him to explore this cave. It was going to take about an hour. They drove down there on their bikes. They all rode their bikes. They parked their bikes outside. That's how people later knew they were in the cave. All the bikes were there. I mean, why would you look at this and say it's anything more than what it was reported to be? Well, that's just one aspect of it. Um, so let's start with that, that this um, had started off as, a, as an initiation ritual. They, they were going to write their names at the back of the cave. And I, I, I assume and, or I've heard something to the effect that this is a, a, a popular thing for kids to do in, in that part of Thailand. Um, but let me just tell you the, the thing that really caught my attention is that I started looking at this area of Thailand, this, this, this region, um, and I had seen that um, the capital city of this province has an Amphalus, and that is uh, not oh. not Thai. It's not Asian. Uh, Asian. That is a uh, you know that's from Greek. Yeah, and I tell people who aren't following what an Amphalos is. Well, it's the navel. It's the stone. Um, the in the mythology, um, it's supposed to be, I think, a geodetic marker. Well, in the mythology. Um, Kronos was was eating his children. Kronos, of course, is Saturn. Um, and Rhea, who who is also known as Kybel, and Kybel was the um, that was the mystery cult in which most of the wives of Mithraeus joined. Um, they mostly mostly joined um, <clears throat> the Kybel. So the Kybel cult was basically the eastern star of the Mithraic mysteries. So. Um, you know, Kybel was hiding Zeus from from Kronos, and had wrapped a stone in a okay. blanket, and that you know, and then Kronos had had consumed the stone, and this had you know become. Um, there are a lot of different interpretations of this. One of the common interpretations is that this is based on uh, meteor worship, um, you know, which I discussed with you before, and that you know, uh, meteorites. Um, you know, these stones that fall from the sky that were seen as sacred, many of them were fashioned, you know, the iron of which was mm -hmm. the fashion weapons and, and, and religious objects and things like that. So anyhow, when I when I had seen that, that, that there was an Omphalos in this city, I was like, that doesn't belong there. Um, and then I just started looking at the details, uh, you know, again, the the. Uh, initiation, the, the the seal who had died. Now let me let's just talk about this because this is important. The the um, the primary icon of the Mithraic mysteries is Mithras um, cutting the neck of a bull. It's it's what's called the Tauroctony, and this is a, a sacrificial um, ritual, part of a sacrificial ritual that um, on Vatican Hill in in Rome um, there was um, some sort of apparatus where. Uh, I, the throat of a bull would be cut, 
and these men standing naked in pits, you know, tripping their minds off of, um, you know, of, of ergot um, would be drenched in, um, in, in blood. And this would be their baptism. This would be their ritual birth because this is all about ritual rebirthing. Um, and that was basically the, the key to this, this mystery religion, um, that it was all about, uh, you know, the cycles of death and rebirth and, uh, and infinite time. So the combination of the, um, the initiation ritual, the umphalos, the dead seal. Now the dead seal, what is a male seal called? Ah, a a male seal is a bull. So we had a a seal die, a male seal die, hence bull. Um, And we had a number of sacrifices and rituals being performed by the people in the area. Um, They had left um, pig's heads at the the entrance to the cave along with, with beer. And this is you know, this is classic Greco-Roman paganism. I mean, now when you say people are left after the boys were discovered to be lost in the cave, ordinary citizens in Thailand of that province came and left these things at the mouth of the cave after the torrential rains that had trapped the the kids in their in their soccer coach somewhere inside, right? Yes, and and as a matter of fact, to the um the the mysteries at Eleusis, um, the price of admission was a baby piglet and there would be these mass sacrifices of baby piglets at these uh, mystery um, ceremonies and of course these kids are the wild boars and wild boar is um, an interesting um, icon because that connects to um, this lineage of gods dating back to uh, Dumuzi in Sumer and Tammuz in, in Akkad and it's this the shepherd boy who's the um, consort of the the queen goddess uh, Mother Earth or you know Mother Sky. I mean, there there are various you know permutations of this, but we would know this best as um, either Kybel and Attis or Venus and Adonis. And b- both uh, Attis and Adonis were killed by wild boars, and their priests um, became um, they would castrate themselves publicly. During these um, massive festivals to the goddess, they would, uh, where, where, you know, animals would be would be slain in pits, very similar to the Mithraic liturgies. Um, and uh, Thailand, of course, is well known for what is called the third sex or cat hoey, uh, you know, commonly known in, in internet parlance as lady boys. That they there is a, a large um, and accepted uh, group of um, transgender people um, in. Thailand, which, you know, again, caught my interest because of Kybel and Addis, the wild boar, you know, specifically a wild boar and the connection to um, the the transgendered priests. And then again, this connection to Thailand and then this connection with the Imphalos, which by my reckoning doesn't actually belong there. It's not part of that religion. Um, and then, uh, you know, some of the photos that I've seen, there was actually a, a massive Thanksgiving um, festival for the for the rescue of these boys. And it was actually rather gruesome because you just saw these rows and rows of um, pig heads, of uh, boiled pig heads, um, you know, along with um, dead chickens and so on and so forth. And again, I mean, this is very much out of the, the mystery tradition. 
you know, it's, it's certainly a parallelism because I think it's common to most mm. animist traditions. But however, you know, it just struck my interest. And of course, you had mentioned the 12 boys, 12 months of the year, 12 months of the Zodiac, um, the 25, the 25 year old coach, 1225, uh, which we today, of course, know as Christmas, but in the Imperial Rome was known as the Nati um, Sol Invicti. And that was the um, the birth of the or the rebirth of the uh, invincible son or the unconquered son. So um, what I would like to do, since um, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners might just be <laughs> kind of lost with this, um, I want to uh, point them to um, Radio with Pictures now. Okay. Is, that, is that possible? Yeah, by all means. So let me tell you how to get there. Go to the other side of midnight.com. Click on to tonight's graphic, which is all about Thailand with the boys there in the cave. Very interesting photo. That will take you to the guest page, which is Georgia and uh, Chris's page tonight. Just scroll down to where it says Christopher's items. And number one, very interesting photo saying Thai boys cave rescue, 17 days in darkness. It's like they died, but now have been reborn. And and that, of course, is straight out of the Mithraic liturgies, that it, you are reborn into the cult um, through ordeal. And, you know, you saw the word ordeal pop up time and time again with these boys. 17 days, you know, you and I have talked on numerous occasions about 17, 17 um, applying to Osiris, uh, d dead on the... Uh, killed by Set on the 17th day of the third month of the Egyptian calendar. We see 17. The Romans, now this is interesting, the Romans identified um, 17 through, um, <laughs> I, I'm not exactly sure what the translation is, but 17 in um, Roman novels somehow translates to, this is the day I have died. Um, I'm not really? exactly sure. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what the um, the justification is by that, but th that's just something I thought was interesting. Um, the boys entered the cave on the 174th day of the year and were all rescued. They were in in the cave. So 174th day of the year, they enter the cave. They're in the cave for 17 days, and they're all rescued on the date where there are 174 days left in the year. So it's Holy 174, cow. I mean, how can one... that be accidental? How can that be just random chance? I mean, that's bizarre. Really, really, really bizarre. Now, let me tell you another bizarreness. We've now had a chance to listen to these kids. They had a press conference when they were released from the hospital a couple of days ago. And, you know, all of them got a chance to speak. They all act totally, totally, totally normal like they're just a bunch of kids that got trapped in an adventure and things went really weird. They could have died. They got rescued. There's no overtones in an 11-year-old. I mean, how can an 11-year-old kind of, you know, uh, lie and say he was just going to celebrate a friend's birthday party when, in fact, he was being led into do some strange religious ritual? How do we connect the dots to where – they don't appear to know what they were doing if they were doing anything. Well, I, I, I have no reason to believe that they would be if, – if, if this, in fact, was a pre-planned ritual. And, of course, I'm not saying that it is. I mean, uh, because I have no evidence that it is. We just have these uh, numerous parallelisms with these rituals. I, I just want to make that clear. I think that's very important to say. But um, they the, – we were told that um, they had practiced um, – 
meditation techniques and that the meditation techniques had kept them calm, you know, even though that they were all hungry and, and well, we were, we were and, told that the, this uh, this uh, uh, kind of stateless coach looks more and more interesting to me. What's his background? To keep them calm, to keep them together, to keep them in hope that they'd be rescued, he started teaching them meditations from his background, from his religious training. But but they weren't they they weren't all raised in the same religion. He kind of imposed that as part of the circumstance, ostensibly to keep them focused on hope and the future and getting out and all that, is it possible that they were part of something they had no idea they were part of? Well, I, I think that's entirely possible, but but do be aware that um, Thailand is a, is a Buddhist country and that um, meditation techniques are, are very common and popular among ordinary Thais. So, um, you, you know, there could be sort of a... Um, well, again, John will probably clear this up for us in the third hour, but I, I believe it was that the coach was teaching them these techniques, indicating that they weren't accustomed, they weren't knowledgeable in these techniques. Well, either way, I mean, the, the point is, is that from what we've been told that these techniques essentially saved their lives. But, you know, the other thing that I'm fascinated by, on top of the other parallelisms that I've discussed, is the fact that we had heard when they were all rescued, that they were being, um, I guess, injected with ketamine. Now, ketamine is is um, a, a very powerful uh, oh animal God, tranquilizer, yeah. but it's also hallucinogenic. And um, if you, anybody's seen the movie uh, Altered States with William Hurt. Um, Long time that, ago. Yes, that's based on the work of John Lilly, um, who did I a lot of. I was thinking of John Lilly working with dolphins and ketamine. Yes, exactly. So, um, again, I mean, the, the Mithraic liturgy um, starts off with, you know, basically a recipe for making a, a brew very similar to the brew that William Hurt had taken in the cave in, uh, in Altered States. And, of course, that also comes from the, the novel. So, I mean, there are all these just, ah, just strange little parallelisms that that didn't make sense in the cu cultural context to Mithraism, to Greco-Roman mysteries. Now, if we go down to, and now I want to explain because I, I want people to understand that this Mithras thing is not some just historic, this isn't just a history lesson. We're not just go walking down memory lane that I very much believe that the Mithraic uh, mysteries are very much alive um, and are all over the place, if you look. Well, remember when I said I discovered ritualism in NASA, the last place you would ever imagine. It's like I started looking at other things. I found it in the Iraq War. I found it on Wall Street. I found it. I mean, it's it's all over. There is this sub subterranean hidden behind the facade of normal religion. There's 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 folks practicing in power these very interesting secret rites, and they're totally secret, they're never admitted, but there's even statuary and architecture and iconography around us, and unless you know the history, you'll look at it and say, oh, that's kind of a weird statue. No, it's connected to something that goes back, you know, at least two plus thousand years. Well, let's start with the first one, because this is my favorite example. Uh, I mean, this, this good is old Rockefeller Center. Yes, Rockefeller Center, 30 Rock. Um, with the great architect or the grand architect of the universe at, at the, uh, the doorway. Um, this, um, 
commonly referred to as Prometheus. Now, if you look at that figure and you're familiar with the Prometheus myths of this sort of hoary old Titan who was chained to a rock, that's not, <laughs> that's not Prometheus. However, in late antiquity, Mithras was associated, you know, because gods had become popular, sort of like vacuums swept up the, the aspects and the names of all these other gods and it sort of became part of their this shtick, you know, the spiel that they had absorbed. Um, you know, for instance, Isis had absorbed the the roles and the the duties of, an, of, of a number of other goddesses, even though Isis comparatively was very young in context to Egyptian religion. But if you look at that statue, what we see here is... Um, this is item number two in Radio with Pictures. Yes, yes. On the guest page, on under Chris's items, look at that beautiful picture of the fountain at Rockefeller Center. There's 30 rock rising behind with all the flags and this very bizarre gold kind of reclining, good-looking stud Adonis figure. Exactly. So this is not Prometheus. This is Mithras. Um, Mithras was born from the rock, that he emerged from a rock. And, of course, we see th this figure emerging from a rock here. Um, we see him surrounded by the, the Zodiac, and that's when I talk about the 12 boys and, and the coach and so on and so forth, representing the Zodiac. Um, Prometheus was not identified with the Zodiac at all. Uh, you, you see a number of ancient icons and statuaries and things like that of nature uh, where Mithras is, is very commonly and very often associated with the Zodiac, with the stations of the sun, so on and so forth. And also in the Mithraic liturgy, when the um, the celebrant meets Math Mithras, he's a, he's, a, he's a young man of golden visage. So this, this is basically the figure that's described in the Mithraic liturgy of the Paris Codex. And this is a, a rather well-known collection of writings, um, many of which are hermetic, that were... Um, rescued uh and have you ever gone back and looked at the history of this statue which was erected during the uh depression when when 30 rock was built yes i have but, but there, there are a couple of things that i just want to point out you know that are, are germane to this discussion that we're having first of all notice that he's set in he's he's in a he's in a recess. So it's a recess. It's This is a representation of a cave. This is a, a, a hole within the earth. You know, notice that uh, Mithras you mean, is not... You mean that kind of uh, spackled band around the base of him sitting on top of this, uh, I don't know, what would you call it? It looks like an umphalos. It looks like a dome-shaped rock. Yeah, exactly. And But it's... it's it's recessed. It's so not the, so the, so the... But aren't those symbols of, of the zodiac around this this encircling yes, lower but, part? But like I said, that's associated with Mithras. But, you know, it's just very important to notice that that he's been beneath the earth. He's below the earth. He's being born in a Coming rock. Coming out of a cave, you mean? Yes, exactly. Okay, but the, we right. also have the waterfall, which, you know, when I told you that the, the cave um, preferably had to have a large body of water or a well right. or a spring or some sort of source of running water within it. So basically what we're seeing in Rockefeller Center, um, you know, sort of the... Um, the hub of of modern society in many ways is is Mithras in the cave, born from the rock, surrounded by the zodiac. And of course, the fire um in in the in the myths of Prometheus, um Prometheus has the he carries the fire on fennel sticks. He doesn't just carry it in his hand. Mithras carries the fire in his hand. Mithras carries the fire in his hand when he's being born from the rock. So this is just in every shape 
way and form. This is not Prometheus. This is Mithras. This is a very classical, very orthodox depiction of Mithras. Hey, but so, hold it there. We're at the top okay. of the hour. And I've got something really amazingly cool that you don't know, Chris, about this because I tripped over it like six months ago. I didn't know where it fit. And it now fits tonight. You're right. on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're talking about Mithras and the Lost Boys of Thailand. And there is a connection, as you will see. We shall return. for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website the other side of midnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show, during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, 
And this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.